Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 1179 through 1209, and that will bring us to the end of part two, section one, which is really exciting. So recall that there are four parts to the catechism. Within each part, there are two sections. Section one gives a general description of the particular part. So part one focuses on the creed, part two on the sacraments, part three on the commandments, part four on prayer, specifically there, Father. And in each part, section one gives a general, presents a general discussion of the topic. And then in part two, excuse me, section two of each part, um, the catechism details the particulars of that particular topic. So we went through line by line the Apostles' Creed in part one, section two. Now in part two, section two, we'll go through each of the seven sacraments. Um, So by the end of today's episode, if you've been listening all the way through, you will have accomplished part one, section one, and section two, part two, section one. All right, so we're making our way through. Um, today's episode is entitled A Tale, excuse me, Liturgy, A Tale of Two Churches. So we're going to talk about uh, two experiences I had in two different churches and then tie that back to um, the, the very last paragraph that we read in today's reading selection, which has to do with apostolic succession and how that ensures that we receive the sacraments that Christ instituted in their, their proper format and as a result receive all the graces or have the potential to receive all the graces that he has in store for each and every one of us. So here we go. All right. So tale number one, let's go back in time to when I lived in Nicaragua. I've mentioned on an episode or two how, uh, for those of you who don't listen all the way through, and in case you missed this episode, um, for two years I taught in Managua, Nicaragua at a Catholic high school. And, um, it was a wonderful experience. And, um, as I spent the longer I spent there, the longer, the more time I spent there, um, I started discovering which churches I liked to attend and kind of found my little group. And um, so I attended this one church in Managua, which had this tradition of every Thursday after their daily mass, I went in the evening after school was done, they had a daily mass, um, I'm assuming they did it at their other Thursday daily masses, they would do, uh, the priest would do uh, a short Eucharistic procession around the church. So, you know, daily mass was about a half hour. Mass ended. The priest would then place the Eucharist in a monstrance. Um, So if if anyone's not familiar with what a monstrance is, it's where the Eucharist is displayed rather than being closed away in a tabernacle. The Eucharist is displayed um, so that you can see Jesus behind the glass. And um, there are a number of different styles of, of, there's probably a plural to monstrances, we'll just say monstrances. Um, And he would process around the church with Jesus displayed in the monstrance so we could all see him. And then um, a couple altar servers and volunteers from the congregation would carry around Father and the monstrance, which housed Jesus, this beautifully decorated um, tent, basically. So it was was four poles and then, um, you know, this this beautifully decorated fabric uh, went around... um, 
Father and the Eucharist. And so they would process um, around the church and, you know, we knelt as Jesus passed, we would, we would pray together. And then ultimately Father would go back to the altar and we would say the divine praises. He would do benediction, bless us, and then repose or put the blessed sacrament back in the tabernacle. So this was something um, that I had not really experienced. I, I'd seen Eucharistic processions. Um, I had been blessed, you know, been at, um, for example, when I went to Steubenville, we would have Eucharistic adoration and, you know, I had experienced benediction and being blessed by the Eucharist. Um, but I had never experienced this kind of like little tent-like structure around it. And um, it was really cool and really different. And as I attended Mass on Thursdays and would participate in this, um, I came to learn over time and through my studies of theology that it was so appropriate to do it on Thursdays because as we celebrate at the Holy Thursday liturgy, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, it was Thursday that Christ instituted the Eucharist. So Thursday night, um, you know, before he was betrayed by Judas, he gathered his apostles around him, broke bread, said, this is my body, passed the cup of wine, said, this is my blood, after having, you know, consecrated them uh, into his body and blood, said the prayers that made them into his body and blood, which he then shared with his apostles. So it was very fitting that this church and many churches throughout the world did a Eucharistic procession on Thursdays. Also, it was outside the confines of the Mass, so it was appropriately placed. You know, it was tied to the Mass. We would go right from Mass to this Eucharistic procession, but it was outside. It wasn't like something that was like added on to the Mass. It was, you know, just outside of the Mass. And it was reverent. It was beautiful and um, just a really, really neat experience. So fast forward a couple years, and I am on a five-week road trip around the country with my brother Greg. So I was teaching by, at that time, so I had off in the summers, and he was in between his junior and senior years of college, so he too was home for the summer. And um, he just planned this fabulous, fabulous trip for us where we, we road tripped for five weeks, uh, camping and hiking in national parks, visiting family and friends around the country. And, um, this was pre, I, I, there were smartphones at the time, but neither he nor I had one. And, um, they weren't as commonly used as, as, uh, we use them now. And so I remember we were at some rest stop in the middle of Kansas and we were a little mixed up and, you know, we're in this rest stop getting our Slurpees and M&Ms and we see this woman on her smartphone and my brother said, um, do you mind if we just check that re something real quick on your phone? You know, which people wouldn't, wouldn't do now because we all have, so many of us have smartphones. So this was pre-smartphone era and, um, Greg, God bless him, had had meticulously planned out this trip to the point where you know he would he knew we would be in Kanab, Utah, on our way to Arches National Park on July twenty seventh, and so he found the nearest Catholic church, you know, found out the the mass times and you know the directions from our campsite to to the church. So uh, we, in the course of our road trip, happened to be um, in one of our more wild and free states, let's say, maybe a state where um, uh, the practice of the Catholic faith is a little more fast and loose. Let's just say that that state rhymes with Schmorrigan and uh, also happens to be my birth state. Um, so when uh, 
so I was born in, in Oregon. We, we moved to the East Coast shortly after that. Um, but as the token Oregonian in the house, uh, whenever I would do anything a little wild and free, some of my family members would say, like, oh, that's because you're an Oregonian. So shout out to uh, all my Oregonian listeners here. So we're, we're in a Catholic church in Oregon, and um, the, the priest was, was real relaxed, Real, real relaxed to the point where he mid homily came and sat with the congregation. At another point in the mass, he sat in the pews. Um, he invited a number of lay people to come up and con celebrate with him. And so, as as Greg and I left the church, we were, we looked at each other and said, "Like, did I receive the Eucharist? Did you receive the Eucharist? Was that mass? Did mass just take place? Because I'm not sure." <laughs> so uh, again, it was another experience that that was a little foreign, a little different, but unlike my experience in. Nicaragua, where it resonated with our church tradition, it followed the rubrics of uh, our other practices. Um, this was inconsistent with a number of our traditions, our practices, and so you could just feel at a gut level like, mm, maybe the consecration didn't actually take place because I think some words were left out and some more words were added in, and I don't think that was a Catholic Mass. <laughs> So uh, a tale of two churches, this is. My experiences at these, each of these churches looked different from what I was used to um, participating in doing at my home parish. But um, one was consistent with the tradition of the church and the other was not. And so I bring up these stories today because uh, today's selection from the Catechism talks about diversity and unity in the liturgy. So in our, our sacramental practices in the church, um, whether that's in Mass, uh, whether that's in the Sacrament of Confirmation, whether that's in Baptism, um, there, there's a tradition and a, a way of, of handing on these sacraments instituted by Christ that ensures what, what Christ instituted is properly handed on so that we, we get the graces he intends for each of us. Part of the beauty of our church, our Catholic church, that word Catholic means universal, is that we are a diverse bunch. So, um, you know, the church spans uh, the world, different races and languages and, um, you know, cultural traditions. Um, but what's also cool about the Catholic Universal Church is that uh, in the midst of our diversity, our differences, we're celebrating and handing on the one truth given to us by, by Jesus Christ, by God himself. And so if you go to a church on Thursday in Managua, Nicaragua, you will hear the same readings and receive the same Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and have the opportunity for the same graces as if you were in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or uh, Portland, Oregon, or Vienna, Austria. No matter where you are in the world, whatever day it is, um, What's what's this is airing on, on Monday, January 9th. So Monday, January 9th, 2023, the same first reading, the same responsorial psalm, the same gospel will be read in all the Catholic churches throughout the world. So no matter the language being spoken, um, no matter the country, no matter the cultural traditions, I say traditions with a small t, the, the same faith, the same truth, is handed on, which is awesome. 
So let's look at paragraph 1200, the beginning of paragraph 1201, uh, to see where the catechism talks about this diversity and unity and their relationship to each other. Paragraph 1200 says, from the first community of Jerusalem until the Perusia, or the second coming of Christ, it is the same paschal mystery that the churches of God, faithful to the apostolic faith, celebrate in every place. The mystery celebrated in the liturgy is one, but the forms of its celebration are diverse. The mystery of Christ is so unfathomably rich that it cannot be exhausted by its expression in any single liturgical tradition. So how cool that this church in Managua, Nicaragua, uh, sheds um, a beautiful light on what happened on Holy Thursday, every Thursday at their daily Mass. So by processing the Eucharist around the church, um, the congregation is reminded of what Christ did, and that dimension of our Catholic faith is brought to life in a beautiful way. Um, as many other traditions in many churches throughout the world do as well in different ways. What is it, though, that makes for unity in the midst of diversity versus diversity that's going rogue? So this experience I had in this church in Oregon, why did that feel off or why was that off and not just another form of the diversity of um, the Catholic Church? So paragraph 1209, the last paragraph from today's reading, uh, sheds light on that as it says. The criterion that assures unity amid the diversity of liturgical traditions is fidelity to apostolic tradition. For example, the communion in the faith and the sacraments received from the apostles, a communion that is both signified and guaranteed by apostolic succession. So fidelity to apostolic tradition, communion in faith and sacraments received from the apostles. And then that last line, I think, drives it home. A communion that is both signified and guaranteed by apostolic succession. So we are linked 2,000 years later to Christ through the apostles and their successors. So as Christians or Christians, we look at what Christ did. What did he do? He gathered around himself 12 men, the 12 apostles. And as he's preparing to go to the Father, so he knows he's leaving, um, and he knows that people are already mixed up when he's standing in their presence. When he leaves to go back to the Father, we're going to be even more mixed up. So in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 and following, he says to his apostles, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah the prophet, or Jeremiah the prophet, some say Elijah. Um, Christ is standing in their midst, and people are already confused. So when he goes to the Father, we're going to be even a little more lost, a little more confused. And so what does he do? He entrusts this teaching to the 12 apostles. He knows that they're going to die and that people will be confused. And so what does he do? He establishes what's known as apostolic succession, or the apostles will hand on what they have learned from Christ himself to the next set of apostles or bishops. So the apostles are really the, the first bishops. They will then hand on to the, this truth they've received to the next set of bishops, and then those bishops to the next set of bishops. And so that we get the same sacraments, the same seven sacraments that Christ instituted 2,000 years ago, 
Um, he lays it out for the apostles, who then lay it out for the bishops, who then lay it out for the next set of bishops, who then lay it out, bah, 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 so that 2,000 years later, we have the same seven sacraments that Christ instituted um, and intended for each and every one of us. Uh, that passage, Matthew 16, goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, or Christ says in that passage, in verses 18 and 19, you are Peter, and upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, I'm about to leave, so I give you the keys to the kingdom. He didn't literally give him keys to a kingdom, but this language was heavily charged, um, and the, his audience would have known what he was talking about in that in the Old Testament, when a king, or the Old Testament times, when a king, and we read in the Old Testament, a king would leave his kingdom, physically leave his kingdom, he would give the literal keys to the kingdom, the keys that unlocked the gate into the kingdom, to uh, next in charge, a prime minister, so that the, the next person in charge while the king was away literally held the keys to the kingdom and people looked to him and knew that he was in charge while the king, the leader, was away. And so when Christ says this to Peter, he is saying, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm putting you in charge, and basically what you say goes. Christ then says in other passages, I will be with you until the end of the age, um, I will not forsake you. And so while Peter's in charge, it's Christ, it's God himself who's continuing to move and work and act through him. Christ knows that Peter's going to die, and so Peter gives those metaphorical keys or the papacy to the next pope. That pope, God knows he's going to die, and so he has lined up this system, we could say, where someone is always holding the keys, and God ensures that no matter how holy or how unholy that pope is, the person holding the keys to the kingdom, um, God will continue to give us his truth. And in this case, as pertains to today's topic, the, the sacraments that Christ instituted and intends for each of us. And so if a church remains faithful to the apostolic succession, uh, Catholic Church looks to the Pope in Rome and continues to um, practice what God has given us through Peter and then the next Pope and the next Pope and the next Pope. Recall that you can just check out any history book and um, draw a direct line from St. Peter now to Pope Francis. Um, when it gets a little murky in you know different years, whether it's the Avignon Papacy or um, again, some of those bad popes, there's still a direct line. So um, even when, when men tried to claim the papacy, um, there was a legitimate pope at the time, and that, that direct line just cuts through 2,000 years. And so when churches are faithful to the pope in Rome, faithful to the papacy, um, they are connected to that apostolic succession, which ensures the faithful handing on of divine revelation. Again, that's not saying that 
Pope Francis or whoever, so many popes along the way are perfect, are, are sinless, not at all. They're sinners just like the rest of us. Um, but God has instituted the papacy and apostolic succession to ensure that divine revelation, his truth revealed to us through sacred scripture, sacred tradition interpreted by the magisterium is handed on faithfully year after year after year after year, which is absolutely wild. It's when churches go rogue, so they either protest the Catholic Church, Protestant churches, um, or when Catholic churches start to go rogue and uh, perform the sacraments in different ways that um, they cut themselves and the people who attend those churches off from the sacraments Christ instituted, off from the graces that um, God intends for each and every one of us. So if you attend a church that is faithful to Rome, um, it continues to perform the sacraments according to what's called the the rubrics, the proper format of the sacraments. Um, then whether or not the priest is holy, um, as long as he's he's carrying out the sacrament as it was intended to be carried out or performed, um, you are receiving, have the opportunity to receive all the graces that can come through that sacrament. So recall from a previous episode, we talked about um, it was paragraph 1128, sacraments affect grace ex opere operato by the very fact of the actions being performed. So practical takeaways. One, let's go to the sacraments. Okay, there's grace there, an abundance of grace there for each and every one of us. Uh, second, if something, if you're ever uh, participating in a sacrament that feels off, um, so like that's that sense that my brother and I got coming out of that that one church. Talk to a trusted priest, and um, lastly, uh, let's pray for unity within the diversity of the church. So just as Christ prayed on the cross that that all of us would be one, as He and His Father are one. Let's pray uh, for our unity worldwide, um, that we may be one, as as the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are one. So we're going to take a brief break, and then we'll return on the second side to read our catechism selection for the day. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 1179 through 1209. Where is the liturgy celebrated? The worship in spirit and in truth of the new covenant is not tied exclusively to any one place. The whole earth is sacred and entrusted to the children of men. What matters above all is that when the faithful assemble in the same place, they're the living stones gathered to be built into a spiritual house. For the body of the risen Christ is the spiritual temple from which the source of living water springs forth. Incorporated into Christ by the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of the living God. When the exercise of religious liberty is not thwarted, Christians construct buildings for divine worship. These visible churches are not simply gathering places, but signify and make visible the church living in this place, the dwelling of God with men reconciled and united in Christ. A church, a house of prayer in which the Eucharist is celebrated and reserved, where the faithful assemble and where is worshipped the presence of the Son of God our Savior, offered for us on the sacrificial altar for the help and consolation of the faithful, this house ought to be in good taste and a worthy place for prayer and sacred ceremonial. 
in this house of God, the truth and the harmony of the signs that make it up should show Christ to be present and active in this place. The altar of the new covenant is the Lord's cross from which the sacraments of the Paschal mystery flow. On the altar, which is the center of the church, the sacrifice of the cross is made present under sacramental signs. The altar is also the table of the Lord, to which the people of God are invited. In certain Eastern liturgies, the altar is also the symbol of the tomb. Christ truly died and is truly risen. The tabernacle is to be situated in churches in a most worthy place with the greatest honor. The dignity, placing, and security of the Eucharistic tabernacle should foster adoration before the Lord, really present in the Blessed Sacrament of the altar. The sacred chrism, or myron, used in anointings as a sacramental sign of the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, is traditionally reserved and venerated in a secure place in the sanctuary. The oil of catechumens and the oil of the sick may also be placed there. The chair of the bishop, cathedra, or that of the priest, should express his office of presiding over the assembly and of directing prayer. The lectern, or ambo, the dignity of the word of God requires the church to have a suitable place for announcing his message so that the attention of the people may be easily directed to that place during the liturgy of the word. The gathering of the people of God begins with baptism. A church must have a place for the celebration of baptism, a baptistry, and for fostering remembrance of the baptismal promises, a holy water font. The renewal of the baptismal life requires penance. A church then must lend itself to the expression of repentance and the reception of forgiveness, which requires an appropriate place to receive penitence. A church must also be a space that invites us to the recollection and silent prayer that extend and internalize the great prayer of the Eucharist. Finally, the church has an eschatological significance. To enter into the house of God, we must cross a threshold, which symbolizes passing from the world wounded by sin to the world of the new life to which all men are called. The visible church is a symbol of the Father's house toward which the people of God is journeying and where the Father will wipe every tear from their eyes. Also for this reason, the church is the house of all God's children, open and welcoming. In brief, the liturgy is the work of the whole Christ, head and body. Our high priest celebrates it unceasingly in the heavenly liturgy with the Holy Mother of God, the apostles, all the saints, and the multitude of those who have already entered the kingdom. In a liturgical celebration, the whole assembly is Leotorgos, each member according to his own function. The baptismal priesthood is that of the whole body of Christ, but some of the faithful are, are ordained through the sacrament of holy orders to represent Christ as head of the body. The liturgical celebration involves signs and symbols relating to creation, candles, water, fire, human life, washing, anointing, breaking bread, and the history of salvation, the rites of Passover. Integrated into the world of faith and taken up by the power of the Holy Spirit, these cosmic elements, human rituals, and gestures of remembrance of God become bearers of the saving and sanctifying action of Christ. The liturgy of the word is an integral part of the celebration. The meaning of the celebration is expressed by the word of God, which is proclaimed and by the response of faith to it. Song and music are closely connected with the liturgical action. The criteria for their proper use are the beauty expressive of prayer, the unanimous participation of the assembly, and the sacred character of the celebration. Sacred images in our churches and homes are intended to awaken and nourish our faith in the mystery of Christ. 
through the icon of Christ and his works of salvation, it is he whom we adore. Through sacred images of the Holy Mother of God, of the angels and of the saints, we venerate the persons we represented. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the principal day for the celebration of the Eucharist because it is the day of the resurrection. It is the preeminent day of the liturgical assembly, the day of the Christian family, and the day of joy and rest from work. Sunday is the foundation and kernel of the whole liturgical year. The Church, in the course of the year, unfolds the whole mystery of Christ from his incarnation and nativity through his ascension, to Pentecost and the expectation of the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord. By keeping the memorials of the saints, first of all the Holy Mother of God, then the apostles, the martyrs, and other saints, on fixed days of the liturgical year, the Church on earth shows that she is united with the liturgy of heaven. She gives glory to Christ for having accomplished his salvation in his glorified members. Their example encourages her on her way to the Father. The faithful who celebrate the Liturgy of the Hours are united to Christ our High Priest by the prayer of the Psalms, meditation on the Word of God, and canticles and blessings, in order to be joined with His unceasing and universal prayer that gives glory to the Father and implores the gift of the Holy Spirit on the whole world. Christ is the true temple of God, the place where His glory dwells. By the grace of God, Christians also become temples of the Holy Spirit, living stones out of which the church is built. In its earthly state, the church needs places where the community can gather together. Our visible churches, holy places, are images of the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem, toward which we are making our way on pilgrimage. It is in these churches that the church celebrates public worship to the glory of the Holy Trinity, hears the word of God, and sings his praise, lifts up her prayer, and offers the sacrifice of Christ sacramentally present in the midst of the assembly. These churches are also places of recollection and personal prayer. Article 2, Liturgical Diversity and the Unity of the Mystery. Liturgical Traditions and the Catholicity of the Church. From the first community of Jerusalem until the Perusia, it is the same Paschal mystery that the churches of God, faithful to the apostolic faith, celebrate in every place. The mystery celebrated in the liturgy is one, but the forms of its celebration are diverse. The mystery of Christ is so unfathomably rich that it cannot be exhausted by its expression in any single liturgical tradition. The history of the blossoming and development of these rites witnesses to a remarkable complementarity. When the churches lived their respective liturgical traditions in the communion of the faith and the sacraments of the faith, they enriched one another and grew in fidelity to tradition and to the common mission of the whole church. The diverse liturgical traditions have arisen by very reason of the church's mission. Churches of the same geographical and cultural area came to celebrate the mystery of Christ through particular expressions characterized by the culture. In the tradition of the deposit of faith, in liturgical symbolism, in the organization of fraternal communion, in the theological understanding of the mysteries, and in various forms of holiness. Through the liturgical life of a local church, Christ, the light and salvation of all peoples, is made manifest to the particular people and culture to which that church is sent and in which she is rooted. The church is Catholic, capable of integrating into her unity while purifying them all the authentic riches of cultures. The liturgical traditions or rites presently in use in the church are the Latin, principally the Roman rite, but also the rites of certain local churches, such as the Ambrosian rite or those of certain religious orders, and the Byzantine, Alexandrian, or Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Maronite, and Chaldean rites. 
In faithful obedience to tradition, the Sacred Council declares that Holy Mother Church holds all lawfully recognized rights to be of equal right and dignity, and that she wishes to preserve them in the future and to foster them in every way. Liturgy and Culture The celebration of the liturgy, therefore, should correspond to the genius and culture of the different peoples. In order that the mystery of Christ be made known to all the nations, to bring about the obedience of faith, it must be proclaimed, celebrated, and lived in all cultures in such a way that they themselves are not abolished by it, but redeemed and fulfilled. It is with and through their own human culture, assumed and transfigured by Christ, that the multitude of God's children has access to the Father in order to glorify Him in the one Spirit. In the liturgy, above all that of the sacraments, there is an immutable part, a part that is divinely instituted and of which the Church is the guardian, and parts that can be changed, which the Church has the power and on occasion also the duty to adapt to the cultures of recently evangelized peoples. Liturgical diversity can be a source of enrichment, but it can also provoke tensions, mutual misunderstandings, and even schisms. In this matter, it is clear that diversity must not damage unity. It must express only fidelity to the common faith, to the sacramental signs that the Church has received from Christ, and to hierarchical communion. Cultural adaptation also requires a conversion of heart, and even where necessary, a breaking with ancestral customs incompatible with the Catholic faith. In brief, it is fitting that liturgical celebration tends to express itself in the culture of the people where the Church finds herself, though without being submissive to it. Moreover, the liturgy itself generates cultures and shapes them. The diverse liturgical traditions or rites legitimately recognized manifest the Catholicity of the Church because they signify and communicate the same mystery of Christ. The criterion that assures unity amid the diversity of liturgical traditions is fidelity to apostolic tradition, for example, the communion in the faith and the sacraments received from the apostles a communion that is both signified and guaranteed by apostolic succession. This brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode for the week. Thanks so much for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.